Before we get the show started, a number of you have asked about supporting what I do here at Monumental. I now have a mechanism on my website for that to occur. Just go to mattministry.com, mattministry.com, and click on the support page. You can make a one-time or recurring support gift. Your financial support provides me the help with resources and, more importantly, time to make more of what you hopefully enjoy. So go to mattministry.com and click support if you'd like to help. Your support is deeply appreciated. And with that, let's get it started. There is wide speculation on how and when the practice actually began. Some scholars say it can be traced to ancient Chinese cultures. Its first documented uses were for prisoners of war and later for those guilty of treason, those who attempted to overthrow the current regime. The ancient Egyptians were known for impaling in which a body was put through a pointed stake, bringing death almost instantly as vital internal organs were immediately pierced. The Bible mentions a form of it in the book of Deuteronomy. Future empires would also continue the practice. When Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians, conquered the Israelite city of Lachish in 701 BC, carvings on walls show prisoners being strung up on poles, with the pole inserted up through the ribs. Not only was this punishment, but also a statement to other cities and nations who dared oppose him. The Persian Empire is said to have innovated the practice further. Alexander the Great and his Greek Empire would also utilize it in their rule. The Greek historian Herodotus writes of a Persian general executed in 479 BC in a way that would later become standard, quote, they nailed him to a plank and hung him up. It was reported that Alexander himself impaled 2,000 prisoners at his siege of the Phoenician city of Tyre. The practice is at the root of the English word excruciating. The Romans who conquered Greece would further utilize it, for it combined really more than any other punishment, two very important elements for a government, pain and duration. No death penalty could bring maximum hurt to the criminal with maximum propaganda to the observer. There are cases in which the sentenced would hang for days and occasionally for weeks. All of these factors would mingle together one day outside the city of Jerusalem for what seemed to be just another day of Rome literally executing its tyrannical power. But they didn't realize how two planks of wood, a few nails, and an innocent man would coalesce to be the most famous and fateful result in human history. 
It is, without a doubt, the most famous death in human history. And among all the emblems of the world, none is admired, glorified, and worshipped as the cross. Some say it was the biggest miscarriage of justice of all time. It's, it's important to understand the brutality of the day and, and, and what they did to this guy who did absolutely nothing. Jesus was innocent, not just of committing a, a, a crime punishable by death, but he was completely innocent. How is it that the death of a nondescript teacher from 2,000 years ago still affects the world today? You cannot write a more tragic story. It's impossible. He carried no political power. He held no official position within his own religion. Yet he managed to gain the attention of oppressed citizens, the outcast, the downtrodden, the forgotten, then religious officials, soldiers, and eventually the Roman Empire itself. Oh, the people love him. He's known as a healer and an exorcist. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's implying that there will be regime change. He's approachable on a human level. His death could only be described as a conspiracy of the highest order. He said that the Holy Spirit would descend and convince the world that he was innocent. Accusations are plentiful. But who is ultimately responsible? Much research of the historical Jesus has focused on this question of who was responsible for Jesus' death. By whose hand did the founder of the world's largest religion suffer and die? The Matcast proudly presents a limited podcast series with an investigation of scripture and experts, all in an effort to answer one question. Who killed Jesus. Thank you for joining us for episode one of Who Killed Jesus? My name is Matt Anderson. At one time, there was a national ad campaign for a corporation named BASF, which used the tagline, we don't make a lot of the products you buy, we make a lot of the products you buy better. That probably describes the Roman Empire and its republic best. They had a penchant for taking practices and innovations of their neighbors and adapting them for their own use. A lot of their religion almost duplicated Greek mythology simply just using different names for their gods and goddesses. In fact, they appropriated a lot from the Greeks, including architecture and philosophy. Their ideas for engineering came from the Etruscans. Their legal system was no different, as they incorporated practices from many of their former enemies, including punishments for evildoers. This podcast seeks to examine the death of Jesus Christ and identifying those most responsible for what many believe to be history's worst judicial mistake. We'll do this primarily by reading scriptural accounts, then consult historical writings, and thirdly hear from experts. While we don't necessarily endorse the views of all in this podcast, feel free to check the show notes and watch their interviews or teachings in full and judge for yourself. 
this series will go through a list of likely suspects as we seek to once and for all lay blame in the proper place. In part one, we center our attention on the most obvious suspects of all, the soldiers who tortured, whipped, and crucified Jesus Christ. Matthew 27 Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. While emphasis is rightfully upon the crucifixion, it is easy to blur past the whipping Jesus endured before it. The Romans refer to it as flogging or scourging, and the Roman soldiers were renowned and even proud of their reputation in flogging. Many criminals dreaded the scourging as much if not more than the crucifixion itself. Here is Rick Renner. So when a person was scourged, they were fixed in a position when they couldn't defend themselves, they couldn't wiggle, they couldn't move. They just had to stay there and take the beating action of the whip. Romans were professionals at scourging. They took special delight in the fact that they were the best at scourging people. Once the victim was harnessed to the post and stretched over it, the Roman soldiers began to put them through torture. One writer notes, that the mere anticipation of the whip caused the victim's body to grow rigid. It caused the muscles to knot in his stomach. It caused the color to drain from his cheeks and his lips to draw tight against his teeth as he waited for the first sadistic blow of the whip that would begin to tear his body apart. Jesus is handed over to the Roman soldiers to be flogged. Tradition held that 40 lashes could kill a man and wanting the display to last as long as possible, many say Jesus would have received 39 lashes. This would happen at a small arena in the city called the Praetorium, which was used for games of sport. But today, another game of sport was about to be played, featuring a rogue preacher who believed himself to be the king of the Jews. Today, Rome would display its physical dominance over him, proving who the actual king and ruler of the Jews was. Jesus was completely stripped of clothing. Remember, this is all about pain and humiliation on the highest level. Jesus would kneel at a short, thick column of stone, only about two feet high, and be fastened to it. 
his head would have been level with the top of the column. Three soldiers would be involved in the flogging. Two soldiers or legionnaires, one on each side of him, who would administer the blows, and a captain of the guard who wore a white helmet would supervise the scourging, signal the beginning and the end of the whipping, and count the number of strikes. One of the soldiers would walk over to a trough of dirty water out of which may have protruded three whip handles. Now the whip was known by different names. The Romans often called it a flagrum, while others refer to it as a cat o' nine tails. The whip was actually a series of braided leather straps with a ball of metal woven into them. The soldier would select a whip with now wet leather and drag it on the dirty ground of the arena. Also woven into the leather straps were particles of bone, rock, and even glass. With a nod from the captain of the guard, the soldier reared his hand back, fully extending the length of the whip, then bringing it with full force, possibly on the left shoulder of Jesus. The metal ball would cause deep bruising and contusions as it made contact with the body. However, with the wet leather, the whip would not only strike him, it would attach itself to him. The woven fragments of bone and rock and glass penetrate his skin. Then the soldier would yank the whip back, literally pulling the skin off of his body, leaving a stripe of dangling flesh hanging from his shoulder. Flesh and blood fell to the ground and the crowd would have roared its approval. And that was lash number one. Very likely the second lash would have been next to the first one. And with repeated strikes, the metal ball would open up the contusions into bleeding sores. Eventually, there was no flesh left. It hung limply at his hips. Now dirt was hitting the exposed wound, leading to inevitable infection. Possibly after 13 strikes, the soldier would then go back to the trough and grab another whip and proceed with the next 13 strikes. On one of those, perhaps the wet leather would grab onto the shoulder length hair of Christ and pull it out by the root. I'm sure as the strikes of the whip passed 30, the back would be so shredded that part of his spine would have been exposed by the deep deep cuts. The whipping would have gone all the way from the shoulders down to the back, the buttocks, and the back of the legs. As the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and cause uncontrollable shaking. One historian described the flogging this way. The sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. The victim would often go into hypovolemic shock, 
which comes as a result of losing a large amount of blood. This does four things. First, the heart races to try to pump blood that isn't there. Second, the blood pressure drops, causing fainting or collapse. Third, the kidneys stop producing urine to maintain what volume is left. And fourth, the person becomes very thirsty as the body craves fluids to replace the lost blood volume. Here's one description on the possible damage done. One lash with this whip, one thong, would make a cut about two inches long and about three quarters of an inch deep. To put that into medical terms, that's a cut that would take about 20 stitches to close. So with one lash, one swing of the whip, a total of nine lacerations could be inflicted on the victim. Each laceration, two inches long and three quarters to one inch deep. With one blow, the Roman legionnaire can inflict enough wounds to take 180 stitches to close. If you multiply that times 39, those two Roman legionnaires inflicted enough lacerations to take about 2,000 stitches to close. Bringing Jesus back to his feet, one of the soldiers comes up with a novel idea. Since Jesus fancies himself to be a king, the soldiers will give him a crown. They find a bramble bush of thorns, form them in a circular fashion, and then attach it to his head by forcing it down so that it penetrates his scalp. Blood now flows freely from his head. They find a robe of purple, perhaps one that was being worn by one of the Praetorian Guard, since purple is the color of royalty. They throw it over his shoulders, give him a wooden stick to use as a scepter, then bow in fake reverence. We worship you, your majesty, they mocked. Then they hit him with their hands and take the fake scepter and bash him in the head with it, sending him back to the ground. One last humiliation before sending him on to crucifixion. Luke chapter 23. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. 
Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, He praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The historian Josephus describes crucifixion as the most wretched of deaths. And the Roman philosopher Seneca argued that suicide was preferable to the cruel fate of being put on the cross. The shedding of blood and the concept of corpse contamination meant that the executions took place outside the city walls. Often the most popular spot was along one of the main roads leading into the city. This also served as propaganda purposes to demonstrate Roman law and order. These execution spots contained permanent upright poles. The vertical beam would also contain a wooden block serving as a crude seat midway down the beam. The victim did not carry the whole cross, but only the crossbeam, which weighed approximately 100 pounds. After the scourging, there was a very high risk that the victim could die before arriving at the site of execution. The necessity of keeping the victim alive led to the practice of the legions commandeering someone from the crowd to help carry the beam when the victim succumbed. This is the role of Simon of Cyrene in the Gospels. Upon arrival, the victim was either tied or more likely nailed to the crossbeam, which was then hoisted up and connected to the vertical pole, usually with ladders and pulleys. One of the soldiers grabbed two metal spikes about five to seven inches long and tapered to a sharp point. They were driven through the wrists, 
which was much more likely than the palm, as the palm would not offer enough strength to hold the body on the crossbeam. Going through the wrist was a solid position that would lock the hand. The nail would go through the place where the median nerve runs. This is the largest nerve going out of the hand, and it would be crushed by the nail that was being pounded in. At this point, Jesus was hoisted as the crossbar was attached to the vertical stake, and then nails were driven through Jesus' feet. Again, the nerves in his feet would have been crushed, and there would have been a similar type of pain. His arms would have immediately been stretched out to their full wingspan, and both shoulders would have become dislocated as a result. Once a person is hanging in the vertical position, crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and the diaphragm put the chest into the inhaled position. So basically, in order to exhale, the individual must push up on his feet so that the tension of the muscles would be eased for a moment, but in doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bones. After managing to exhale, the person would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. Again, he would have to push himself up to exhale, scraping his bloodied back against the coarse wood of the cross. Support for the victim also included, quote, the vinegar mixed with gall, as reported in the Bible. One of the purposes of crucifixion was to keep the victim alive as long as possible so that everyone could appreciate the result of rebelling against Rome. This was the equivalent of using a type of smelling salt as a means of temporarily reviving the victim when they began to falter. While hanging, fiery nerve pain shoots through the fingers and arms and into the brain. The muscles would cramp, causing searing, throbbing pain. This would go on and on until complete exhaustion would take over and Jesus would not be able to push up and breathe anymore. Hanging now by his arms, the pectoral muscles as well as the muscles between the ribs are useless. Air can be inhaled into the lungs, but not exhaled. As the victim slows down his breathing, he goes into what is called respiratory acidosis. The carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to increase. This eventually leads to an irregular heartbeat. In fact, the heart would now beat erratically. As mentioned, some victims would hang on for days, exposed to the elements and slowly losing the ability to breathe. Jesus was crucified at about nine in the morning. By three in the afternoon, the hypovolemic shock Jesus first suffered at the whipping now would have caused a sustained rapid heart rate that would have contributed to heart failure, resulting in the collection of fluid in the membrane around the heart called a pericardial effusion, 
as well as around the lungs, which is called a pleural effusion. Finally, the victim would go through cardiac arrest and die. Sometimes the Romans would hurry the process of death by breaking the legs of the crucified, but it would not be necessary in Jesus' case. However, to ensure death, the Romans would spear the side of the victim as they did with Christ. Crucifixion victims were not given proper burials. Their bodies and bones were thrown into rivers and ditches. Such would have been the fate of Christ's body, except Joseph of Arimathea came forward and asked Pilate to bury Jesus in his own tomb. It is the only thing that stood between complete annihilation of his corpse. Now, while we look upon the events of that day with maximum disgust, it was literally just another day at the office for these soldiers, these torturers, these executioners. What they did is inexcusable, but it was a part of their regular duties. It reminds one of the Nazi guards and torturers at places like Treblinka, Auschwitz, and Dachau. At the end of World War II, as the Nuremberg trials commenced, the defense of those who had a large hand in murdering and gassing millions of Jews and others would likely be the same of the soldiers who inflicted the physical pain and anguish upon the body of Christ. Namely, I was just following orders. Well, that didn't work in the 1940s, and it still doesn't hold water today. There is blood upon these men's hands. But we also know from Nuremberg that it wasn't only the SS members and soldiers who faced punishment. There was culpability as well upon those who administered the genocide. So in our examination of who killed Jesus, we must courageously look upon the one who gave the order of execution, Pontius Pilate. You've been listening to Who Killed Jesus, a MattCast limited series and a production of Monumental Ministries. For more information or to hear the archives of our show, go to mattministry.com. Thanks for listening.